This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Svetlana Alexievich, last year's Nobel Prize winner, has a new book out in English, Secondhand Time, The Last of the Soviets. We'll discuss with our reviewer, Adam Hochschild. Spotting what to consider a story. It's her eye in doing that that I think makes this a remarkable book. And a novel that chronicles the sharp knives and sharper elbows of New York's restaurant world, Stephanie Danler is here to talk about her debut novel, Sweet Bitter. Connecting with people, being able to read them, being able to meet them at their level, all of that human skill set has been really important to me. What's it like when your book is turned into a movie and you get to write the screenplay? Best-selling novelist Jojo Moyes is here to talk about Me Before You. I think they felt it would almost be safest for me to have a go at it because I was the best person to be able to maintain that balance and also the very English tone of the book. Also, literary news and a look at what we and other people are reading this week. Svetlana Alexievich won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2015. Her latest book, Secondhand Time, The Last of the Soviets, has just been translated and published here. Adam Hochschild, no stranger to this podcast, reviews it for us this week. Welcome back, Adam. It's a pleasure. This uh, is, of course, the uh, new book in English from the recent Nobel Prize winner, Svetlana Alexievich. Had you read her work before? I have. Uh, I read the book that's in English under the sort of awkward title, uh, Zinky Boys. Uh, I read part of it that appeared in uh, Granta magazine, which was about Soviet veterans of the Afghan war, their Afghan war. That's the only bit of her work that I've read before, but I was very impressed with this new book. And just background uh, for those who are not familiar with what Svetlana does, and it's a very different approach um, for most Nobel Prize winners uh, in literature. How would you characterize her work and her approach? Well, I think the best way would be to make an analogy to her American counterpart, Studs Terkel, who uh, put together a series of wonderful books which were essentially very thoughtfully edited interviews with people. Uh, not Q&A interviews, but he would talk to somebody for uh, many hours and then edit down what they said. I actually once had the experience of being interviewed by Turkle myself, and after talking for three hours, found that when his book came out, what I said was reduced to six paragraphs. <laughs> and as an interviewee, that felt very strange. Uh, but from a reader point of view, it was probably terrific because there was maybe only six paragraphs worth of stuff that I said in those three hours. Alexievich does the same kind of thing, having long, long talks with people, uh, often in several stages, and then she edits it into a sort of monologue. So it's, uh, it's, these books of hers are based on interviews, but usually without the questions posed by her, where you just hear someone talking. And it's a remarkable collection of voices. And uh, I think the Nobel Committee did the right thing to honor her for doing this, because she does it uh, extraordinarily well. Um, oral history, I think, is someone something that you know people look at the same way that they look at a Jackson Pollock painting and think, well, that looks very easy. You're, you're not actually writing anything. You're just writing down other people's words. But I, I think you point to two very different um, and important skills that are involved in doing it well. The first um, being the interviewing and being able to elicit um, the kind of stories that Alexievich collects here. And then that second part, um, the editing and the creating, the sculpting 
a narrative. Um, I think in your uh, review, you, you refer to a novel in voices. Does it read that way? Uh, in a way, it does. I think there's also another skill, too, which is spotting what to consider a story. Uh, because really, it's her eye in doing that that I think makes this a remarkable book. Uh, I was particularly taken with uh, a story of one man that she focused on whom she didn't interview because he was dead, but she interviewed a number of people who knew him. Timurian Zinatov, who had been a construction worker in Siberia, but he had a moment of glory during World War II when he won a medal for defending a famous fortress at, at Brest. Uh, which was then part of the, the Soviet Union. And then he fought through the rest of the war. He returned to this fortress, which was the scene of his moment of glory, every year. Uh, then, after the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, he, like you know, millions of other people, a number of whom she also interviews in the book, was just shocked that you know, the World War II veterans who always in, in the Soviet Union were put on a great pedestal and honored repeatedly. Suddenly that didn't mean anything anymore. <clears throat> the country had changed. Brest was no longer in the country that it once had been because the Soviet Union no longer existed. Brest was now in Belarus. He came back in 1992 to the fortress one last time then committed suicide, threw himself under a train instead of going home, and left a message asking to be buried in this fortress. So she hears about somebody like this who's now dead. He can't be interviewed, but then she interviews a number of people who knew him and his, his widow and so on. I'm just fascinated by her eye for such stories. And to be able to reconstruct it then through multiple voices. Yes. Uh, there was another suicide that she also focused on, uh, Sergei Akromeyev, who was a high-ranking Soviet military official who was believed to be a supporter of the 1991 coup that failed against uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who hanged himself in his Kremlin office uh, shortly afterwards. And again, she couldn't interview him, but she interviewed officials who knew him. She quotes from public documents describing his death. Uh, she's fascinated by people who look back at communism, now that Soviet communism has been dead for 25 years, that look back at it as something glorious whose loss they mourn. This is not um, the first book by Svetlana Alexievich, as we mentioned, but her, but her most recent one and the newest one to be uh, put out in English. So she's done a number of these oral histories. What is she specifically trying to do in secondhand time? And, and perhaps the subtitle, The Last of the Soviets, gives a hint. What she's interested in is here, you know, this 70-plus years of experimentation with a different kind of society uh, in, in the Soviet Union came to a very inglorious end, but it shaped the lives of hundreds of millions of people who were born there during that time, uh, who lived through it, including herself. And she's interested in how people look back on this time. What fascinated me about the book is that there are these people, such as these two military suicides that I just talked about, 
uh, who look back on it as a glorious time, whose right. loss should be mourned. And then there are people who, whose families suffered horribly uh, under the Soviet uh, rule. You know, parents and grandparents shot or sent to Siberian gulags for uh, years and years at a time who look back on it as, as something awful. And then there are people who suffered horribly during that period, but still look back on it as a glorious time. And in my review, I, I, I quoted the case of one of them, a retired factory director who himself had been arrested during Stalin's uh, purge years of the 1930s, and he'd been beaten and tortured horribly. And uh, finally, after a year in prison under unbelievably horrible conditions, they let him go. He was one of the lucky ones that way because, you know, millions more people were, were kept in the gulag for years. Then he's in the army in World War II. At one point, he runs into his former interrogator in the army. And now he feels adrift and lost in the new Russia. And he, he goes into his, he describes to her how he goes into his grandchildren's room and it's full of blue jeans and American music, and they've been drinking Coke and, and Pepsi. He feels lost in this new country, even though the old country had tortured him and, and treated him, literally tortured him and treated him so horribly. So there is a kind of fascination she has with the certainty of the certainties that existed under the old regime. You knew who the villains were, you knew who the enemies were, even if you were sometimes put in that category yourself. Uh, and she's fascinated by the nostalgia that some people have for it. Um, I think for a lot of Americans, the rise of Putin has felt kind of inexplicable. Why would Russians want to go back to um, this kind of, you know, autocratic rule. But I wonder if you felt like his popularity was illuminated in, in certain ways by some of what you read in the book. Well, I think it's certainly illuminated by this book, and it's illuminated by just looking back uh, over Russian history. You know, this is a country which, you know, for centuries uh, knew rule by the czars. Then after 1917, uh, Soviet form of communism, where again everything was controlled by a small group of people at the top, and you know, for 25 years or so, by one man, Joseph Stalin, at the top in a tremendously cruel and autocratic way. And I just think Americans are unrealistic to expect people who have lived for centuries under that kind of tight authoritarian control to suddenly become a, a sort of uh, moderate, democratic, Scandinavian-like uh, democracy. Uh, it doesn't happen. And I think, you know, someone like Putin offers a, a form of authoritarian rule with which many Russians are very familiar and which, with which, unfortunately, tens of millions of them feel quite comfortable. Whether he can sustain his popularity in the grim economic times, which low oil prices are bringing to Russia now, is another question, but uh, he seems to be doing uh, remarkably better than one might expect or hope so far. One of the many reasons we thought of you um, as a reviewer for this book is that, of course, you wrote, among many other books, The Unquiet Ghost, Russians Remember Stalin, which wasn't structured the same as an oral history, but was based on extensive interviews that you did with uh, people in the former Soviet Union about the Stalin years. And that was it came out in 1994? 
It did, and it was based on my living in what was then still the Soviet Union for the first half of 1991. And I was uh, spending a lot of time traveling back and forth across that vast country, uh, trying to talk to people about how they were coming to terms with the Stalin era, which for the first time under Gorbachev, people could talk about openly. The long forbidden books like Solzhenitsyn's were being published at last. People were starting to dig up mass graves. You know, history teachers were trying to figure out, all right, how do we teach history now that we're allowed to say things that we couldn't say before? Right. And it was a fascinating experience uh, for me. And of course, nobody at that time, really fully predicted the extent to which uh, everything they'd known would collapse and change. At the end of that year, 1991, the Soviet Union abruptly became 15 different countries. No one really saw that coming. I would imagine then that reading this book was especially interesting to see the shift in people's perspective on that period. What has changed in that more than 20 years since you first were, were there talking to people? Well, I think one thing that people have discovered in the, these last 25 years is that uh, when, you, when a totally authoritarian regime dies, there is a lot of uncertainty. You know, there are some advantages to living in a police state. There's very little street crime, for instance. And this was just beginning in 1991 uh, when the Soviet Union was starting to collapse. All of a sudden, there were certain streets in Moscow that it was not safe to walk on at, at night. And this had never been the case before. Another advantage that living in a tightly controlled society like that had is that there was guaranteed good news in the newspapers all the time. And in a tightly controlled economy, you know, certain basic things were provided. People had enough to eat. They were reasonably confident that that would continue. Then suddenly capitalism comes and brings with it all kinds of links to the world market where it brings much more instability to the economy. It brings vast differences between rich and poor because, of course, the, the ruling class of the old Soviet Union, the bureaucrats and managers of these state enterprises just privatized them into their own hands and uh, you know built these giant enormously wealthy conglomerates and it's meant a certain kind of freedom for people access to books ideas uh, opportunities to travel and so forth that they didn't have before and that's certainly been welcomed by by tens of millions of people at the same time it's led to vast disparities of wealth and you know, some people living in dire poverty, not having a guaranteed place to live and enough to eat. And under the old regime, you at least had a guaranteed place to live. It might be an apartment you had to share mm -hmm. with a couple of other families. But uh, those sorts of things were guaranteed in a way that they aren't anymore. Well, this is a book that certainly gives a, a real window into what that is actually like for people in the former Soviet Union. The book, again, is Secondhand Time, The Last of the Soviets, An Oral History by Svetlani Alexievich, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature last year, reviewed by Adam Hochschild. Adam, thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking about this, and I really would recommend the book to your readers.
Alexandra Alter joins us now to talk about what's going on in the book world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. Tell us what's happening. This week I met a really interesting author, Basma Abdulaziz, who is an Egyptian novelist. Uh, she's visiting New York because her novel, The Q, is being published in English this week by Melville House Press. And it's a fascinating novel because she was inspired by the Arab Spring and the kind of the disappointing aftermath of the Arab Spring, particularly in Egypt, where, you know, there is a new sort of authoritarian power now and all the promises of social freedoms haven't been fulfilled. So she wrote this kind of dystopian Orwellian novel about people who are stranded in this line that gets miles and miles longer to petition this government authority for any kind of basic need you can imagine, medical treatment. Um, Wait, that's dystopian lines that get longer and yes. longer. That never, even if <laughs> Basically you've been my standing commute on the every hours, morning right. is dystopian. I was talking to her about where this idea came from, and she was telling me a little bit about the literary scene in Egypt now and, and throughout the Middle East. And there is a number of novels coming out in English now that were previously published in Arabic that kind of take similar themes. Um, they're either set in the future where things have gotten much worse in Egypt or other countries. Um, new authoritarian powers have come into play. I mean, um, is that in part because it's not safe to write about I, the here and now? That's definitely one reason. Uh, one of the authors that I spoke to said that he set his novel in the future in, in a way so that he could write about the current leaders without drawing explicit connections right. to them. This is kind of frightening what's going on in Egypt and in Turkey. And yes. Other- I mean, that's another reason I think these novels are coming out. There's been a real frightening clampdown on free expression. There's a novelist, Ahmed Naji, who is being held in prison in Egypt for a, a novel he wrote. It's a work of fiction, but it had sexually explicit passages. It was just awarded by Penn last week. That's right. Uh, many, many writers, hundreds of writers are signing a petition for his freedom. And, you know, the Egyptian constitution that they adopted after the revolution explicitly protects artists and writers. But in this case, they said that this novel was violating public morality. Likewise, in Saudi Arabia, there's a poet who's being um, held. He was going to be executed, but now he's being sentenced to eight years in prison for writing what the authorities said were blasphemous poems. Before we go back to this Egyptian dystopian novelist, we should mention one good development in terms of imprisoned writer this week, was, which is that last year's uh, recipient of the Pan Award uh, was just released from prison in Azerbaijan. So... I think she's the 36th of the 40 people who've won that award. Yes, that's very good news. And she's an investigative journalist. And, of course, you know, I think journalists are being persecuted all over the world. I think the one thing that people were especially troubled about with Ahmed Naji is that he was writing fiction. Yeah. And it wasn't explicitly a political critique. So let's go back to this uh, novelist uh, who, with her dystopian book, is that uh, being published by Millville House right now? Is that available? Yes, it's come out this week. And what's the book called? It's called The Q. Okay. And how is it? It's wonderful. I mean, it. one, I will say one challenging thing, and I think this was done deliberately, is that she uses a lot of coded language. So she never says revolution. She never says uprising. She never says dictatorship. And these are the main themes of the book. Instead, she calls the revolution the first storm. She calls a subsequent crackdown the disgraceful events. So if you're not really familiar with some of the current events in Egypt, it can seem a little bit opaque. On the other hand, she did that not only, I think, to protect herself, but also because she wanted to turn what was happening in her country into a more universal story. As she told me in an interview, she said this could happen in Latin America and Africa. It could happen in any country. And she's hoping that readers all over the world will read the book and make their own connections. All right. Well, if you're eager to do so, the book, again, is The Q by... Basma Abdulaziz. Thanks for saying that for me, Alexandra. <laughs> all right. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Pamela. 
Stephanie Danler's coming-of-age in the restaurant world book, Sweet Bitter, has managed to knock out both foodies and critics. Stephanie, congratulations, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is a treat. This book comes with a really fun origin story. I'm sure you've now told it many times, times. Um, but I'm going to make you tell it to our podcast listeners again. So how did you how did you get this book deal? Um, I was in graduate school at the new school, and I was working on the manuscript for two years, and I had finished it. But the entire time I was in graduate school, I was also working as a waitress at Bouvet, a restaurant in the West Village. And I had an agent. And we were sending the book out, and a few days before we sent it out, I was waiting on one of my regular customers, Peter Gethers, who I knew was an editor at Random House, but I'd been waiting on him for like a year and a half, and we had never had that conversation where I was volunteering that I was a writer. But on that day, I did, and he was generous enough to say he would take a look at the manuscript and... A week later, I was in his office at Knopf, and I had a two-book deal, and my entire life changed, and it was an explosion. Isn't that supposed to happen, like, with actresses when they were waiting? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a little bit of an urban myth um, as far as the, like, overnight aspect of it, because I had been working on the book for years and years at that point. But, yeah, it's not really a platform that writers... You know, they're not usually sliding their manuscript across the table. Yes. Whereas an actress, I feel like just being seen is enough right. sometimes. In the book, your protagonist, Tess, is a back waiter. Were you a back waiter or a waiter? I was a back waiter at okay. Union Square Cafe when I was 22. I did not have the skill set to be a server at that okay. point. Oh, you server. You're using the, is that the preferred term? That's what that's what we say. Well, it's interesting. Even the word back waiter is a new term for me because when I was working in a restaurant many moons ago, it was a busboy, right? I mean, that's right. essentially what it is. This yeah. is just the, the preferred term now for a busboy. It's something Danny Meyer did at Union Square Cafe, and maybe it was just to make us feel better about ourselves, but um, there were no busboys. Everyone on the floor was a server or or back waiter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was no there was no back staff like that. Everyone they were aspiring to the same level of professionalism and expertise. Okay. I was trying to come up with like yet another kind of gross stereotype where like the waiters were the actors and the back waiters were the writers, but uh, perhaps that wasn't quite maybe the, the case. Maybe the backup actors, maybe the uh, That's the understudy. The understudy, the back waiters are the understudies of the waiting world. Okay. Um, so you brought you brought up uh, the Union Square Cafe and one of the sort of background origin stories of this uh, is that it's not Bouvet in the book, but that Mm. it is a lightly veiled version of the Union Square Cafe. It does physically look a lot like Union Square Cafe, my memory of Union Square Cafe. But um, thinly veiled and veiled, that veil is really important because that's the freedom of fiction. Mm -hmm. I got to use all of my industry experience. And I've been working in restaurants since I was 15 years old. So the restaurant and the novel isn't limited to Union Square Cafe, um, it's a composite of everywhere. I've How many restaurants have you worked in? Oh my God! I mean, I started when I was fifteen. I was a hostess at Walt's Wharf in Seal Beach. Oh wow! I was yeah. a hostess when I was fourteen. So. Yeah, that's how you. That's how they hook you. Right. You're young, and you're like, oh, this is money. How but exciting! But I've often thought, you know, that the best the best people, no matter what the industry is now, at one point in their background, in their history, worked in a restaurant. 
I mean, I like to think that. I think it's a pretty necessary experience. What did you learn working in restaurants that that helped with this novel besides the kind of obvious story aspects of it? That's a great question. Um, I think there are two things. And the first one is there's a work ethic where when I was in graduate school and I had two jobs, one at Bouvet and I was going to classes and I was writing the novel because I'd worked in restaurants for so long, I knew that I could work a 70-hour week. I knew that I had the capacity. Of course, writing a novel is mental work and tiring in a very different way. But I was very confident about that. And people ask me about it now and what the process was like. And it was brutal looking back on it. But at the time, because I was in the world of restaurants, it felt par for the course. Um, And the second thing is that I think that working in restaurants makes you a more empathetic human. Mm -hmm. I think so much of the job is about empathy. And there's so many mistakes made in restaurants. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And also like connecting with people, being able to read them, being able to meet them at their level, all of that skill set, that human skill set. Is, has been really important to me. Yeah, I think that that starts with a hostess thing. I remember my boss used to say to me, don't lean on that counter, clean that counter. Um, so you really do learn to kind of hustle when you're in a, in a restaurant. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the, uh, the premise of Sweet Bitter and uh, about Tess and the story in general. So when I had the concept for Sweet Bitter, I wanted to tell a female coming-of-age story first. That was the first impetus to write a novel. And then I was so familiar with this world. I was so intimate with the restaurants and food and wine and every aspect. At that point, I was a general manager um, before I left to go back to graduate school. And so when I combined the two, I realized that I could tell the journey of how Tess is going from girl to woman and it's not like a, a flawless journey. There's lots of missteps. But I could tell that through food and wine and that her palate could apply to other experiences as well. The palate was like the key metaphor that really unlocked the book for me. I was like, oh, a palate for cocaine, for lust, for friendship, for New York City. Like when you say palate, is that sort of like appetite plus appreciation plus? Your palate is your your tasting ability. Mm-hmm. Essentially, what, when we use it in wine, we're talking about someone has a um, well-defined palate, they're able to taste nuances. And so it's it's really just training yourself to pay attention to your senses and then mm-hmm. learning the language to go with it. Was there something that, uh, some aspect of the restaurant world that you thought, you know, everybody, I've never read anything that sort of gets this right and I'm going to get this part of it in my book right? That's another great question because I definitely was in conversation with the other restaurant books that are out there, but they're all based around the kitchen, Mm -hmm. which is an incredibly dramatic environment. But I didn't, I wanted to focus on the front of house. And I also didn't want it to just be this kind of testosterone driven rock and roll pirate. Bad boy chef. Exactly. And there are tattoos and drugs here because that's true to the restaurant industry, but. There's something very delicate in that industry as well, something very human and and small. And I remember thinking that I wanted to tell the story through small moments instead of just the time you drop the plate and just the time that the health department comes in. Those are important scenes, Mm -hmm. but um, there's more to it than that. So uh, you uh, are a young woman. You came to New York. You worked in a restaurant. Um, Tess, young woman, comes to New York, works in a restaurant. To what extent is this uh, Romana Clay? 
It's not, unfortunately. Because no no cocaine and... Uh... Oh, no, tons of cocaine. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> um, no, no, no. The experience You could say anything at the New York Times. So it's not autobiographical. What Tess has is a few facts about my life. She moved here the same year that I moved here. She has a job very similar to my job. She has the same apartment that I had when I moved here. But writing a novel is such a different exercise than that because it needs, I didn't know this at the time, a plot. And um, yeah, that, that's useful. It is useful. No one tells you that in when you're <laughs> when you're getting, getting an MFA. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's all just about the sentences. It is all about the sentences. It's so true. And so all of a sudden I was stumbling around in the dark with this concept and this character and I needed a plot which I was really inspired by rereading Henry James' Portrait of a Lady um, while I was in graduate school. And so Simone's made up. I mean, Jake's made up. And it's very sad for me because they're fantastic characters and everyone's looking for them all over the city. But Tess is also made up as well. You mentioned uh, at the beginning of our conversation when we talked about the origin story that uh, you got a two-book deal, which I feel like is one of those, like, on the one hand, great. And then on the other hand, I imagine kind of terrifying things. Have you started the second book? I have not started it. <laughs> okay. And, um, you know, it's interesting because it's nice to know that there is another book to be written. Mm-hmm. I think um, otherwise I would feel very unstable, but I can't even think about it. <laughs> All <laughs> right. Yet. We'll let you enjoy the moment. Uh, the new book is Sweet Bitter. It's a first novel by Stephanie Danler, already getting rave reviews um, in the book review by Gabrielle Hamilton and elsewhere. Stephanie, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Jojo Moyes' novel, Me Before You, was a bestseller when it came out in England in 2012. It was, as the Brits say, a real weepy, and readers devoured it. The movie version, starring Amelia Clark, who you may know from Game of Thrones, comes out next week, and Jojo Moyes is here to talk about both the book and the eagerly anticipated movie. Jojo, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. For those who have not read the book, which came out here in 2013, tell us what it's about. Okay. It's about a man who has everything, like a master of the universe type person. He's good looking. He is wealthy. He has a great job. He's one of these people who does extreme sports and big holidays. He kind of sucks the marrow out of life. And in one split second, he loses all that and is left quadriplegic after an accident. And it's about a small town girl who loses her job and is forced to get a job helping care for him because she supports her family. And the two do not get on. And then she discovers that he has plans to end his life. And she decides she's going to change his mind through a series of adventures. And when you were coming up with these characters of Lou and Will, did you consciously think of this as a story in part about class and about those two very different backgrounds? Very definitely. For me... All good narratives thrive on tension. And, you know, as a writer, you're trying to think of the many obstacles to understanding and and ways to ramp up the tension between characters. And for me, the class thing is such a a naked example of that in terms of how people perceive their own lives, how how they perceive ambition, um, their expectations for themselves. So uh, it was very important that they really be on opposite sides of the spectrum. And they're on opposite sides in many ways. He's well-educated, she's not. He's sort of, a a, well, before the accident, an out-there kind Mm -hmm. of adventurer. She's sort of shut down and and she lives with her parents and, uh, and her sister. Yeah, she lives a very ordinary life. I mean, 
you know, these are not exceptional lives for working class women in the UK. You know, people cannot afford to buy their own houses now. They may not have job security. So it's, it's a pretty ordinary tale in that respect. Did you think of it in a certain way as a kind of update on Jane Eyre and on that kind of... Uh... No, you know, the weird thing is I just wrote the story in my head. And then afterwards, you become, perhaps with the benefit of hindsight, aware of all the tropes that you might be feeding into, you know, the Jane Eyre and Rochester, even Beauty and the Beast. You know, I, I didn't tap into that until someone pointed it out. I did a lot of things without being aware of it. <laughs> it is at heart a love story, of course, mm-hmm. and you've been awarded by the Romantic Writers Association in the UK with various prizes. The word romance here is applied to novels. I know, well, she just cringed uh, <laughs> uh, for those uh, who are not sitting here in the studio. It's one that, you know, generates a lot of reaction. Yeah. Is, it, is it a term that you kind of reject, embrace? How do you feel about I that? Do. I bridle against it for the simple reason that in the UK, and I'm not sure about here, To call someone a romance writer implies uh, a kind of cheapness and a formulaic quality to the writing. And all I can say to you is I work very hard to not take plots in the direction that you might expect. I mean, this book does not necessarily go in the... uh, the happy ever after, the obvious ending. Right. It does not happen here. And, And also, I don't like those characters that fall into easy stereotypes. So one of the things that I really enjoyed writing in this novel is the way the two characters speak to each other is quite humorous and it's quite barbed at times and they take the mickey out of each other, they poke each other, they provoke each other quite a lot. And for me, I wanted to write something that might be a love story, but also reflected how people I knew actually talk to each other within relationships. You know, you can have a whole spectrum of feelings in a very short period of time. And it, and normally in, in a narrative, the fact that two people are not getting on in a kind of cliched romance, that would signpost divorce or, mm-hmm. or a breakup or whatever, or something bad is going on. Here, I wanted to show that it's just part of living with somebody or, or being around somebody every day. Because, you know, I know in my own marriage, we can we can encompass the, the A to Z of emotions right. within 15 minutes. But it doesn't mean anything. It just means you're living with somebody who might be a bit different to you. Yeah. In 2013, in the book review, Liesl Schillinger, our reviewer, had this to say. I want to quote from her review. It's a curious phenomenon that in this digital age, in which thoughts that once emerged quietly and gradually on paper have been overtaken by instantaneous visual and audio impressions that are swiftly taken in without really being absorbed. The rapt viewer sometimes needs to be jarred, slowed down, and forced to look inward. In Me Before You, circumstances lead non-contemplative people to contemplation. When you read that, uh, which I know know that you did, did you think, yes, absolutely. And, you know, I should add that that review changed my life because, you know, what you said about romance writing or women's contemporary fiction or whatever you want to call it, we do not tend to get page reviews in the New York Times. And Liesl Schillinger gave me a review that I have hanging on my study wall to this day because it it said everything about the book that I would want somebody to get from it. But yeah, I mean, these are not contemplative people and, and getting to know each other forces them to really examine themselves, examine what they are doing with their lives. And it's not just him doing some kind of Pygmalion number on her. Right. She forces him to examine his own response to his accident and his view on life. And and to soften, his response to his predicament is fueled by anger and bitterness, yeah. which I totally understand. I think I would be that person. But it's just having someone meet you again as an equal rather than right. tread carefully around you. I think she restores him to himself. 
Tell us a little bit about the path from book to screen. It came out here in 2013. Mm -hmm. Now it's opening three years later um, as a movie. And you wrote the screenplay. I did. I mean, as a result of that review, within days of that appearing, I had, I think, I had 12 movie studios and producers knocking on my door. And uh, I went to meet with MGM a matter of weeks later while I was on a book tour. And I liked their vision for the movie. It seemed to reflect my own vision of the book. And then... They rang me up and said, would you be interested in writing the screenplay? Which was astonishing to me because we've all heard the stories. I, I kind of assumed they'd want to keep me at arm's length. <laughs> right. But Make I think you far, keep you far yeah, away from yeah. the, the studio lot. Can, you know, we've heard the tales. But um, I think in this case, what they felt was that the book is such a particular balance of humor and tragedy and of the love story, but also the the more contentious threads that run through it, perhaps the more thought-provoking elements. But it is a very fine balance, and, and I think they felt that it would almost be safest for me to have a go at it because I was the best person to be able to maintain that balance and also the very English tone of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you and know, you kept that. You have an all-English cast. We do. Um, the, the locations are incredibly English. The cast couldn't be more British. Um, we have Charles Dance and Janet McTeer, who are you know notable theatre actors. She's, she's we amazing. Have, oh, my gosh. We have um, Amelia Clark, who people know Game better as Game of Thrones' Daenerys Targaryen. And we have Sam Claflin, who recently played... Finnick. Finnick O'Dare from The yes. Hunger Games, but also kind of more Britishly, um, he played in the Riot Club, which is sort of loosely based on our Prime Minister's Bullingdon Club antics. Nick Cornby, of course, did Colm Toybean's mm-hmm. recent novel, uh, Brooklyn. It's, it's such a different skill, screenwriting. Was it Completely hard for different. you to, to work in that different medium? It's a challenge. Did I you think sort of I take on... out like Screenwriting 101? And... Well, I had done a screenwriting course a couple of years previously, but I have to say nothing matched up to two things that I did. One was that I looked at every film that I had loved and I got the screenplay for it, and I basically put the two against each other and picked them apart. And that was more useful to me in terms of working out what worked on screen and how people had made that transition. But I was also lucky enough to be invited on set, and there is no education like being on set because you then see that how lines play differently in the hands of different actors what what jumps off the page which jokes fly and which jokes f- fall flat was there a lot of rewriting during that process yeah Thea the director comes from theatre mm-hmm. and I think she she's very collaborative by nature so again what, while most writers would be shepherded on and shepherded off very quickly right. uh, she wanted me involved and we worked every day I mean she would sometimes ring me at five in the morning and say we need to punch up, you know, such and such a line in scene 123. And I would be awake and kind of working on it. And I think possibly because a long time ago, I was a journalist, and I kind of thrive on that sort of adrenaline. uh, It worked for us. And we had very flexible actors as well. They were not afraid of having new scripts handed to them 20 minutes before they were due to go on set. And so, well, for me as a writer, it was an invaluable experience, because you learn that action changes the weight of the words and and for example, Will cannot move from the right. head down. So what I worked out very quickly was that everything that came out of his mouth had to be perfectly balanced and there could be nothing that was superfluous or wrong. Whereas, for example, Louisa's boyfriend, Patrick, is often filmed doing something, which means that the audience is as much focused on the visuals of mm-hmm. him joking around as they are listening to what he's saying. So it's it's of slightly less importance. Going back to you, you began as, as a journalist, mm-hmm. as you said, then you went to novel writing and now yeah. you have this movie. What did journalism bring to your fiction writing? And now when you think about the future, is there something you've learned from screenwriting that will feed back into fiction moving forward? Uh, I think the 
biggest thing I got from journalism was the ability to hear stories everywhere. I mean, you know, I remember doing my journalism course when I was a student and you were just given a page of the A to Z. I don't know if you, yeah, you have a, those. Yeah. And told, go find us three stories. And you were given like one section of it. And I can still do that. I, I always say I can sit in a room with one person. I can get three novels out of them because everybody is interesting. Yes. Everybody has something compelling about them that you can use to go off on a tangent. It's hard to have a conversation with someone without thinking, that should be a story. I got to exactly, do a story. Exactly, exactly. And it just, it trains your ear and it also trains you to listen, which is something that most human beings are incredibly bad at. You know, we're, we're too busy working out what we want to say. And also I'm kind of, I was going to say curious, but I'm actually nosy. I, you know, I want to know about people. <laughs> let's, let's be candid here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really nosy, yeah. I uh, eavesdrop a lot. <laughs> I think you, you kind of got to be for this. And then now working, uh, doing this sort of Hollywood work, do you think you'll bring something from that experience to your next yeah, it, novel? Yeah, the thing it teaches you, screenwriting, is to pare down everything that isn't important. And what I learned from the process was that I write a lot of guff in my books. <laughs> to me, I just it, it just makes you ask the question all the time, how is this moving the plot forward? How is this telling us something about the character? And if it's not... Is it really necessary? Is the language so beautifully done? Is the word, is the sentence so beautifully composed that it earns its keep? And often it's not. And so I, I'm kind of interested to see where the next book goes and whether it's affected. Have you started by... working on it? Well, you know, here's the thing. I wrote 20,000 words of another book. And while I've been away, I'm thinking I'm going to ditch it and write something else. Wow. <laughs> Sometimes I do that. I've, I've ditched 70,000 words before now. Someday they'll be excavated perhaps against against your will. Oh, I hope not. Yeah, I'm no Harper Lee. <laughs> do you want to go do this again? I mean, or do you interested in... I've done in... it again. I You've mean, I think MGM it. created a monster. <laughs> I've got another film in pre-production with Warner Brothers. I, I adapted a book I wrote called The One Plus One. Yes. Um, and that's with New Line, part of Warner Brothers. And I've got another novella that I adapted called Paris for One, which we're just about to start shipping around. So now your fellow authors are going to say you've gone entirely Hollywood. Well, you know, I guess my ideal would be to maintain the the two. I'm not sure um, I could cope with that world 100%. I think I need the, the downtime of sitting by myself in my back room in my pajamas writing as much as I love That's this important kind of thing as well. Yeah. One last question. Um, when you were adapting the novel for the movie, was there sort of one thing that you hoped that you would retain on screen that you that you know you want to make sure that readers of the book, people who love the novel, that they see that there in the movie incarnation of it? Do you mean one scene or something Could be less a scene or, or a theme or was there something that you're like, you know what, the movie has just got to, I've got to make sure that the movie has got this. I think it's the balance thing again. I think for me, the success of the book has boiled down to a couple of things. And one of them is the fact that people laugh as well as cry. And Thea and I, when we worked together, were really keen to retain that balance and, you know, the balance between serious and serious themes and also the love story. And it's not an easy balance to strike. So the early screenings, people seem to be coming out feeling uplifted, having experienced a gamut of emotions I guess it's like an old-fashioned movie experience you know the kind of thing like dark victory when you went in and cried for two hours and then came out feeling kind of cathartic feeling better (laughs) to cry about something else people seem to be coming out feeling uplifted and that's I guess what we we hope for the movie again is me before you opening next weekend based on the novel me before you by Jojo Moyes Jojo thanks so much for being here thank you so much for having me
Carl Sagal and Greg Coles are here now to talk about what everyone is reading, including us. Hi, guys. Hi, hey, Pamela. Pamela. So uh, let's just touch quickly on the bestseller list. Greg, what's new this week? Well, the most significant newcomer on the hardcover fiction list is right at the top, uh, Joe Hill's new novel, The Fireman. A.K.A.? (laughs) A.K.A. Joseph Hill King. He is Stephen King's son. All right. Let's just get that out of the way. (laughs) That book uh, jumps right to the top in its first week on the list. But a writer in his own right, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and, uh, he's been on the list uh, before. This, I think, is his first time opening all the way at number one. But yeah, he's, he's building a real audience. And he also writes reviews for us. Yes, he does. Down at number 13, the uh, celebrity chef, Eric Ruper, who is uh, the chef and a co-owner of um, the four-star Le Bernardin in New York City, has written a memoir called 32 Yokes. He wrote that with Veronica Chambers, and that's new on the list at number 13. Veronica Chambers co-wrote Marcus Samuelson's uh, chef memoir. Oh, so also, she's got this she's gig getting in that going. niche. Yeah. Yeah. And then... Uh, Again, um, new at number one, um, a, a new book right at the top of the nonfiction list as well. It's um, Siddhartha Mukherjee's The Gene. He also uh, is the one who wrote The Emperor of All Maladies about cancer. So now he's taking the same kind of big picture look, um, this time at genetics and, and heredity and how it works. Former cover boy of the New York Times Book Review and podcast guest. Yeah. So we take credit for this. Absolutely. Making that clear, Carl Sagal. <laughs> Carl, what are you reading? So I just saw the revival of The Crucible um, the other day. Oh, did you like? I loved. You and it's did? not my favorite play. It's really not my favorite did play. Did you like the music? I mean, if you you have to be like a Philip Glass fan, which I am. So I mean, I didn't mind it. I was just surprised at how much I enjoyed the production. And when I watched it this time, I, I sort of became kind of haunted by the figure of Tichuba in it, right? She's this slave. I think she's from the Barbados. And the girls say that she's the one who's been teaching them all this sort mm-hmm. of witchcraft. And I was just realizing, I was like, I know so little about like slavery in the early days of the colonies. And I've had this book moldering on my nightstand for about two years. It's called The Half Has Never Been Told by Edward Baptist. It was one of our notable books of 2014. So I picked it up this week. Um, also, I should add, this is part of my ongoing campaign to avoid reading about pregnancy and baby books, which I've OD'd on. <laughs> right, so which you're, you're moving, doing in real life. So right, so I'm moving straight into slavery and the history of capitalism, which I think is a you know good uh, antidote. And it's really like a lovely history. Like economic history isn't really my thing, um, even though I glibly pretend it can be but it's it's a lovely story like he he really does make an effort to wed it to a narrative and to wed it to sort of oral histories and yeah it's just a beautiful story of not beautiful it's a rather like grim story but really beautifully told about uh how slavery was it's it's not like an aberration in american history it was what was responsible for our rocket-like economic growth and um yeah it's quite absorbing in its way but heavy on the train heavy (laughs) (laughs) greg how about you well, it's interesting, Parl, that you opened by mentioning The Crucible because uh, my train reading has been light. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've taken to reading dramas on on the train. And so I just finished um, a play called Tribes by Nina Rain, uh, which is set in um, the the deaf community. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's sort of a who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, like a big dysfunctional family, just everyone's at each other's throats, but they have a deaf son and they have tried to mainstream him and it's reached a breaking point where he's um, starting to uh, want to learn sign language. They've, they've stopped oh, him from doing that. Um, and he's kind of he's a far from the tree the play community. version. Yeah. And um, I, I would love to see it on stage, actually, huh. because uh, you can tell from the staging instructions in the play 
that, that does all kinds of interesting things with subtitles and um, music, the, um, what you can hear as they're talking on stage. So sometimes it tries to oh, reproduce for the audience what it's like being among the deaf. It's, it's a fascinating play, very well written, very funny and quick and sharp. Did you see the uh, Deaf West production of Spring Awakening this year? No. Oh, that was amazing because it was a half-deaf cast and they signed all of their uh, songs while their counterparts um, who were hearing uh, sang the songs. Yeah. But they also used subtitles in a really interesting way so that the deaf characters, often their words would be written on the screen as they were, you know, on a screen behind the, the that was sort of part of the set. Um, and just all kinds of interesting ways to integrate the, their quote-unquote speech into the rest of the production. Wow. Um, and my train reading now is... Um, I've just started reading now Elena Ferrante's The Days of Abandonment. Um, and anyone who's read the Neapolitan series and not read this book, it um, you know it's very much the same voice. And it's interesting because it's this big mystery, who is Elena Ferrante? And so uh, if, if you read those books, you kind of feel like you know her through the character. And it's very much the same voice, but not quite the same character. So everything that doesn't match up with the Elena of, of the Neapolitan series you're reading it for partly for clues to her identity, but then it's also, I mean, it's the story of a wronged wife. Um, it opens with her husband just announcing one day, I've had enough, I'm leaving. She tries to hold it together, and then she finally confronts him, are you seeing another woman? And yes, he and is. And it just gets so and unhinged. It uh, yes. becomes completely, she's a woman uh, you, you know from the start who has lived her whole life trying to bottle in her emotions because yeah. she grew up in a very volatile family and she and thinks, okay, unleashed. I, and, and so it just turns into a raging, angry book um, in a way that that's exhilarating. Yeah. yeah. And it yeah. makes you appreciate the sort of control of the Neapolitan novels, right? Because so many people, I think some people had issues with the realism, with the, with the tone, the sort of restraint. Yeah. Of, and so then you read Days of Abandonment and you're like, this writer's capable of this. <laughs> and <laughs> I should also say <laughs> for podcast listeners who have not read Ferrante and who may not, uh, have time to read the entire Neapolitan quartet that Days of Abandonment is a nice short novel. It's very short. I'd, I'd be surprised if it's even 200 pages. It's the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> and what are you reading, Pamela? I finished Les Miserables. We don't have to talk about that anymore. I cried <laughs> um, uh, predictably. Um, so my reading for writing book is the Tim Parks that we talked about a, a couple weeks ago. I continue with that. And then in my pure fun reading, I have returned to a book that I started last fall and then had to put aside, I think I may have put it aside for Les Miserables, actually, um, but I returned to it happily, controversially, because I know Parl <laughs> is, a, is not a fan, um, but I'm reading... Um, I'm, you can explain. I'm reading uh, David myself. Foster Wallace's nonfiction essay collection, Consider the Lobster. And I have to say, I just, I love it. Um, and But maybe why you didn't write it had to do a little bit with the time and the place? It's everything to do with the time and the place. I, w um, I went to an MFA program. First so mistake. First mistake. <laughs> first mistake. <laughs> At a time when all the boys in the program were, were trying to write like David Foster Wallace. All the women were trying to write like Joan Didion. And because of this, I have this sort of like lingering aftertaste because I've read so many bad pastiches and so many bad homages um, to him. So, you know, I should go back to him and see how I feel about, you know, um, the See, work I think itself. enough time has passed now that it feels original again. My PTSD and I, and, can sort yeah. of wear off. And I also feel like you read it and you just think no one is That's doing right. this. Yeah. Because I've, I guess everyone tried, failed, they were made fun of or criticized, <laughs> yeah. and then everybody was like, okay, we're going to stop trying. And now you read it and you think nobody this is, is doing this. Yeah. So thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Pamela. <laughs> 
Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Thank you.